You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 113. On today's show, I chat with actor Ken Page. We discuss his time in the original Broadway cast of the musical Cats. A little background on Cats. It's the ninth highest grossing Broadway show of all time with $432 million in ticket sales. But that's only the original Broadway run. That's not counting the next one. And it's not counting all the other properties of Cats. Now, there's currently three Broadway shows that have grossed over a billion dollars, and that's The Lion King, The Phantom of the Opera, and Wicked. $432 million is still a lot, and the highest ticket price was $197. And by comparison, Hamilton's highest ticket sale has been $998, and The Book of Mormon has sold tickets for nearly $500. I'll talk a bit more about Cats after the interview. Now, if you enjoy this show and you want to hear the outtakes from our chat, those are on our Patreon page. We talk about Ken's recent trip to Italy and about the Muni, which is an 11,000-seat amphitheater for musical theater in St. Louis, a place where Ken has performed in nearly 50 musicals, and I myself called follow spots there for Little Shop of Horrors in which Ken was Audrey too. To hear those outtakes, visit patreon.com slash artistic finance. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome to the show. We are recording this August 9th, 2022, and that is just about 40 years after Cats, the Broadway musical, started previews, which was on September 23rd, 1982. But before we talk about that, let me introduce our guest, Ken Page, actor and singer. Director, writer. And director and writer. Get them all in these days. (laughs) Who needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. He has performed on the West End and on Broadway, including the musicals Guys and Dolls, Ain't Misbehavin', and The Wiz. And he has two Grammy Awards and is known as the voice of Oogie Boogie in Tim Burton's A Nightmare Before Christmas and the voice of King Gator in All Dogs Go to Heaven. And speaking of dogs, today's episode is about cats. (laughs) Good segue. Before we get there, (laughs) let's get to know Ken the person. So Ken, your creative personality, what is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member or is the most recent sort of live event you've experienced? Well, the most recent live event I experienced was Sunday night here at the Muni, which if people are not familiar with the Muni here in St. Louis, it's an outdoor theater that seats 11,000 people. It's where I started my career at 18 years old, and I've done 43 shows there. But aside from that, they're doing a production right now of The Color Purple, and it was absolutely glorious, 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 glorious. And they had challenges because a couple of weeks ago, some people also may know there was flooding here in the Midwest, and the stage backstage was flooded a foot and a half of water, and some of the mechanics they can use on stage they weren't able to use, but you wouldn't have known any of that. The production was absolutely wonderful. So that's my most recent, which was Sunday. And as I said, it was glorious. I took my 94-year-old Aunt Margaret to see it. 
and she loved it and we had a great time. It was a lovely memory to make. I'm trying to think before that, you know, I was in New York not too, too long ago and I saw Company and I saw MJ and I saw Strange Loop and I saw Six. Uh, all of those live experiences, all of the shows, I would say maybe to varying degrees, but they were all really amazing. <laughs> Well, those, those all sound awesome that you saw. All right. Now, Ken, uh, when I asked you to be on the show, you said, you said, Ethan, I don't want to talk about finances. And I said, okay, well, I mean, we're going to make this work, you know, artistic finance. We can not talk about finances. So we're not going to, but. Yeah. Well, let me say this. Let me say this before <laughs> you. I don't discuss my finances. So that's just a shut door because there's no, it's nobody's business. There you go. But as far as Broadway, I don't know all the finances. You know, there's so many things we think as performers on one side of the situation. I, I fortunately have learned a lot more than I used to know, but we don't know what goes into backing a show and getting it up and how much it costs and so on and so forth. I remember the, the late Gerald Schoenfeld telling me um, at a point, and I think it was uh, probably during Cats, he said that the price of everything wood, nails, uh, a paint, all these things had skyrocketed. He said, it's not just that we go to the office one day and decide, let's raise the prices on everything. And this was how many years ago, right? Cats, the finances of theater have always been daunting, but we also know that pure theater doesn't depend on finances. So you have to call it show business. And then that's a different conversation. Yep, exactly. All right. So the only financial question I will ask you is your financial personality. Are you good or bad with money? I'm okay with money. I'm not bad. I can say that for sure. I know people that have made better investments with the money they've made than I have, but I can honestly say without any, you know, apology, I'm a creative person. I'm not a financial, I'm not, I'm business minded about how to handle career, but I'm not a financially business person. I've always tried to leave that uh, up to other people, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> a couple of occasions. Whoa, <laughs> don't ask. But um, I think I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm not an extravagant person. That's what I would say about myself financially. I believe that in this life, if you can afford it, you should get what you want because life is short. But I also don't believe in being uh, ridiculous, just throwing your money away. And, you know, that's silly. Why? I mean, if you have everything you want, why would you go out and just try to think up things to buy so you can spend money? If you have what you want and need, more importantly, you're doing fine. And if you can afford to have it, you're doing 3000% better than a lot of people, right? Because there's a lot of people who not only want many things, but need many things that they can't afford. So if you can afford to have the things you need, you're doing fine. If you can afford to have a, a few of the things you want, you're doing better than most people. So I try to uh, keep myself in that parentheses of being able to supply my needs and some of my wants. But me going and buying flowers every week is a big deal. And that doesn't break the bank. So that's the kind of thing I think of. I mean, I have to make myself do things that are more costly, that are enjoyable for me. I went to uh, Rome a couple of years ago and I, Italy has been a dream, had been a dream of mine for a long time. And friends said, just go, go. And I was like, no, 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 spend the money. I don't want to spend the money. And then I thought I went through my own, if you will, spiritual process. And I said, you know what, what are you working for? If you can't spend the money to go and enhance, not just enjoy yourself, but enhance your very being, then what are you doing it for? Just to say it's in the bank. I mean, you can get hit by a car the next day and it's just sitting there and you can't take it with you. So I spent the money. Luckily, I had a place to stay, which saved a lot of money. But uh, And I went to Rome and it changed my life. 
affording yourself the things you can have, even if it's flowers or a trip to Rome, work for that. You know what I mean? Don't work to amass money because money, you know, it's just money in the end of the day. It's what you do with it from going to Rome to charity. It's what you do with it that makes its real value. Yeah. All right. So now let's get to cats. Ken, where were you on September 23rd, 1982, which was the day that Cats started previews on Broadway? Where was I? In the Winter Garden Theater, of course. Uh, yeah, I was living in New York and uh, had a place on Central Park West, which was very fabulous, on the 14th floor overlooking the park. I was in Cats and in previews, and I think it was a two-month, three, almost three-month rehearsal period. Wow. Three months before previews? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was a really extensive because, you know, when we first started the show, I'm now wherever they probably do it in an abbreviated way. But when we started it, it was like going to a, a university, a master class, a master program at a university between Jillian Lynn, my dear Jillian, Lynn, and wonderful Trevor Nunn. And of course, Andrew, we really started at scratch. It was called let's let's play theater games. Let's uh explore let's do research about cats and their behavior and everything so people go oh it's just people running around in leotards it wasn't that for us at all i mean we really did a lot of research from a to z starting with cat behavior and what cats mean in terms of the lexicon globally egypt you know the places where cats are revered all of that then graduating into the actual t.s Eliot poems and what they were about and what the context was and when he wrote them and what he was talking about and so forth and the political statements he was making through those characters. Then we started doing the actual work on the show. So that wasn't even happening until three or four weeks into the rehearsal period did we really start working on the actual show. We had 90-minute dance classes every morning with Jillian. You know, it was really like going away to a university, the Cats University, I guess I'd have to call it. But it was pretty special. I think it's common in, in, in Britain to rehearse that way because it's an intellectual pursuit before it's the artistic in a sense. But for American actors, it was a completely uh, uncharted territory to rehearse that way. Now, wasn't Cats on the West End before Broadway? Absolutely. It was a huge hit. That's why it came to America. So I would just assume that they would have had the show rehearsed, etc. And you wouldn't need to do all that. Well, it wasn't about the show. It was about us in the show. I mean, they very well, like you said, they knew what the show was. But also just remember that they changed bits of the show for America from uh, London. They had the Ballad of Billy McCall and they didn't have the opera buffa that we had on Broadway and the whole business. They changed not a lot, but a bit bit of it. In London, Brian Blessed, who originated Deuteronomy in London, played Bustopher and Deuteronomy. For Broadway, I only played Deuteronomy. Uh, You know, little things like that. The roles were divided differently. Uh, the young woman, Sarah, who played uh, Griddlebone with Gus, the theater cat, uh, in London, that was it. There was no second part to the number, uh, like there was in America, where they went into the whole opera thing, you know, and, and Bonnie Simmons did it here and Steve Hannon in America. That was different because it, it incorporated that person had to be an opera cheering singer, whereas the role originally was just this wonderful, lovely actress by the way i got teary the first day of rehearsals in london for the film thing when she got up she's ghost is the cat by the theater door and i'd listened to that album so much from london and it was her voice it was she who was doing it and i thought oh my god and i told her i said you have no idea what emotional response i had to hear your voice but you know what she said oh tosh 
<laughs> that she wasn't no sentimentality about it. Well, so so because it ran 21 years in London, was that version different for that 21 years? Brought when it was Broadway running, they were two different versions the whole time. They were, yeah, because the show as it had been instituted in London was, a, like I said, a different show. Even the visual was different. They refined and changed things. You know, America has got a lot of glitz. And London, uh, the production, even the physical, the costuming and things like that were very almost punk. You know, it was very much like we just went in a room and twisted up some hair and threw on something. And it had a sense that it had been very organic. For America, they refined. John Napier, of course, did both America and London. But they refined everything into more of a look and more of a, a, a signature look, which has now become the signature look of the show. Uh, because you see pictures of the original London production and they don't look anything like Broadway. It's a very different take. The basic things were there, but they refined it. So you were talking about the film. Was that the 1998 film? Yeah, the filmed stage version of the show, which we filmed in London at the Adelphi Theater. And it, was it like the Broadway version or was it the London version? It was a morph, I would say, first of all, just to be accurate. But it was more akin to the London version. Frankly, I don't think the original creators wanted a lot of the stuff that they put in the Broadway production, but the producers wanted more glitz for Broadway. So when it came time to do the uh, filmed stage version, some of those things were left out. For instance, they didn't do Billy McCaw, but the Gus the Theater Cat was just that number. And there was a beautiful overlay of seeing this character as he had it been earlier that went into the film. But they didn't go into the opera and all that. That wasn't there. Okay. It's a 40-year-old show now, over because of London. I just have to say that it hasn't been on Broadway for 20 years, but it is still the fourth longest running show in Broadway history. Well, I don't think you want to forget that there was a Broadway revival. When was that? Yes. Seven, eight years ago. Yeah, right. it was revived on Broadway more recently than 20 years ago. And I went to the opening night. So it's been revived. It was before that one. It was revived in London. So it's it's been done again in the interim of both productions on West End and Broadway. 2016. I was trying to find out how long it ran in 2016. Uh, yeah, it ran for a year and a half, even the revival in 2016. Yes, exactly. Which, which is significant. Um, yeah, yeah. Especially because it's a huge show. It was scaled down a bit from the original, but it was pretty much the same. I mean, there's been so many iterations of the show now that they had, even for us doing the film stage version, our set was a set that had toured the UK. And of course, it was very obviously the same idea set from the show as it originally was. But there were all these versions that were floating around that you could pull pieces from to put it back together, so to speak. I had an occasion to go to Japan when the show, we were on Broadway when they opened the Japanese company, the first one. It was beautiful to look at. But anyway, there was a theater later on when I went over there that was built to house cats. And it was an absolute duplicate of the Winter Garden Theater, which was really weird. To walk into the theater, it was like, this is amazing. They literally duplicated the inside of the Winter Garden Theater. The set was exactly the same, except that they augmented some of the things. Because where at the Winter Garden, they had to sort of do an overlay. They couldn't destroy the theater itself, but they could do overlay things. This theater was built for the theater, for the show. So there were things that they had in places around the little niches and things for the cats to crawl in that were more uh, defined and more ornate because they could do it from scratch, you know. 
And and that's a tip for anybody listening, because you were talking about your experience in Rome earlier. Anytime I've traveled and seen a musical like Wicked, for instance, in Germany, the set does tend to get sort of like built into the theater, like it completely takes over the theater. So I highly recommend anybody going to Europe, go see some theater, because just the way it's done is just even if it's the exact same show, you know, there's little things that are different that you're like, wow, I wasn't expecting this. And the more you I should say, the better, you know, the show, the more you will appreciate those things. Like for me, I said, walking into that theater. Every little thing that was different, I knew because I knew the set and all so well. But to stand on the stage, and they did something for me that was so touching. I stood on the stage in the center of the stage, and they actually put on the addressing of cats and the preliminary, you know, walk up to the time. And I was standing there on this duplicate of the Winter Garden Theater, listening to our recording of it. And it was sort of surreal. In many ways, it was like I looked around, I thought, okay, I've died and this is like cat heaven. This really is the heavy side layer and I'm in it, you know. So you're right, though, the idea of going to see a show someplace. When you see a show done like that, it's not just the show. It's also a replication of the event of the show in other countries. So they do have a sense of adding what we may have experienced in the original going into the theater, Wicked. What they do is they replicate not only the show, but the experience of going in and seeing it. Speaking of Wicked, so Cats is the fourth longest running Broadway show of all time. Wicked is probably going to take, you know, unless Wicked closes in the next year, it's probably going to take it over. The next nearest show that could take over would be the Book of Mormon. And that has to run for another nine years. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Nine. There's the thing. again. Nine more lives. Yeah. Where does Phantom right now? Is it number one still? Phantom's still number one. Yeah. And then after Book of Mormon, Hamilton, that has another 12 to 15 years before it could take the spot. So, well, you know, that whole period where we had what people negatively referred to as the British blockbuster musicals, those shows were such huge. And what it's important to remember, these shows were not just hits on Broadway or hits just on the West End where they all originated. They were global phenomena. Done. I have at least three recordings of Cats, and uh, I think one I have in German, Japanese. These are shows, Phantom and all of them included, Les Mis. These are shows that went all over the world. That's hard to even conceive because, you know, we think, well, it did a great tour or they did a something. But these are shows that were simultaneously at different points running all over the world and still are and still do. It's way beyond the pale of a hit Broadway show or hit West End show. These are global phenomenons. And I think the reason, in my opinion, is because in the doing of them originally, they tapped into something that even Broadway hadn't done, which was material that spoke to people no matter what the language was. You know, we would do shows that were great hits in America that were specifically basically about our American culture. And spoke to us in that way. And some of those shows did go on and have other uh, languages and things like Chorus Line. That's another one example of something that hit the tapped into something that was more than just an American zeitgeist. It was really global. Chorus Line, they could do anywhere in any language and people would understand it because we've all been on that line. When you take Les Miserables, that's a classic piece of literature. Phantom and the Opera is one of the most popular ideas of a story that ever existed. Cats, who doesn't have a cat? (laughs) You know, (laughs) and in some cultures, they're way more, uh, 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 they appreciate them way more than we do even. 
they're divine in some cultures. So cats, I mean, my goodness, but you think about it, we're not talking millions, we're talking billions and billions and billions of dollars. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Well, numbers wise, the New York Post reported in 2012 that cats had globally grossed $3.5 billion. We don't really know it because it's, it's Andrew Lloyd Webber's company owns all of it. So they're the really useful group. So we don't really know, but that's 10, <laughs> that's 10 years ago. Exactly. And, and there's still four big productions of it, like two tours. I think Japan has a sit down. And that's not including the two revivals. That's not including the revenue from the two revivals and all the tours that were going on at the same time. So I'm sure it's, it's probably a another billion or two added on to that by this point. Can you imagine? I remember hearing at one point way back when there, I think there were four shows of Andrews running on Broadway that he made something like a billion dollars a month. I mean, it was something that you went, Oh, come on. But it was true because all of these shows were running simultaneously all over the world. So the revenue was beyond, beyond, beyond. And that was every month weekly, let's face, you know, Broadway box office rather every week he made like, $20 $20 million. So, I mean, it was just amazing. You can't even imagine. I could devote an entire episode, and maybe I should, to you should. Weber and his finances, because it's crazy. Well, if you're ever going to discuss finances, I don't think you get a better subject matter, do you? Because he is, as we talk about the shows being global phenomena, given Les Mis was a different, there is no one else. There is no one else who's done that financial whirlwind the way he has. And the shows were legitimate. I mean, you know, some people don't like cats. Some people didn't like that, whatever. But the shows, you can't, I always say to people who say, well, cats, ah, I don't know. And I said, well, you know, I'll give you it's your opinion. I said, but the globe, you can't argue with the <laughs> whole world because you don't think cats is, you know, the whole world has embraced this. And there has to be something there. They wouldn't have embraced it. Period. Simple. <laughs> Man, Andrew Lee Weber, there's a reason why during COVID, he would say things that made the news. I know from Americans, you like look over there and you're like, what's going on in England? What is this musical composer? Why, why is he making the headlines for talking about COVID and theaters and opening it up? And it's like, well, he's a billionaire. Multi-billionaire. And uh, he owns several of the West End theaters. That is correct. <laughs> well, he's a force. As you say, financially, he's not just a creative force. He's a force of finance in the entertainment industry. And that voice speaks because, let's face it, he can do what he wants to do. So the whole idea of instituting the filtration system, as I think he did at the palace and all that first off early on with COVID, not many people could even do that. But he knew, and I give him great credit for this, he knew it wasn't just a matter of his shows having a successful or financial footing going forward. It was the survival of theater, live theater as we knew it. And for him to, to step into that arena of real finance coupled with creative was a real boon because he was the only one who could really afford to do it and, and test it and see if it was going to work. Because if he hadn't, let's face it, London came back long before Broadway did. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that they had experimented with ways to get people safely in the theater. And a lot of that, I'd say 98% of it had to do with his efforts. Yeah, he's, he's worthy of a show, especially about finance. From any <laughs> direction you want to take it, right? <laughs> and also talking about uh, all those other shows, the Les Mis and all these global mega musicals. I just want to point out that Cats was the first. Yes. Cats was the one that started that, that made the way for Phantom, that made the way for Les Mis. So people saw it happen in Cats because Jessica Sternfeld, she wrote a, a book called The Mega Musical. And she talks about Cats being a hard sell to investors at first 
But then, of course, once it took off. Those smart investors who said, yes, they got the last word. Well, you know, I mean, you think about it. Somebody says we're going to, as Andrew has said in many of his interviews and stories and things, you go to somebody and say, we want to do a musical about the poems of T.S. Eliot, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. What? How? You know, even even in its most refined definition, it was still actors running around in cat suits, you know, singing what you couldn't imagine. That's why I think often it's short shrifted in giving credit to the imagination of what brought it into being the, the, the visuals and all those things, because just the idea, the concept is a hard sell. And when people are financially motivated, you tell them, well, it's going to be people dancing in cat suits. No, thank you. <laughs> you know, but the people who had the imagination to not only imagine it possibly, but respect the creativity of the people who were involved. Trevor Nunn, come on, Jillian Lynn, these are all people who were known for their creativity at a very organic level. It wasn't just, I do hit shows, you know, these were people who were very, very creative people. And if they could see it, and if you were smart enough to understand that they could see it and you could see some of it, why would you not invest? But, you know, that's the way it goes with theater. Some people did never see the vision. Some people didn't see the vision of Wicked coming from a book. Well, who wants to wait? Wizard of Oz. They don't want to fool with it. OK, I, I read I read the Wicked book after seeing the musical and I thought never in a million years would I have gone to see this show if I had read the book. I did not like the book. <laughs> Right, right. Well, I never read the book, so I'm worse than you. Don't. <laughs> well, the idea is that you look at, just take Wicked again, for instance, people, they don't take into account the immense creativity of the people who put what you see on stage. From the idea, from the book writing, the music, costumes, lighting, the sets, all of that is what makes you go into the theater and have this experience. And it's a long way from sometimes the source material. What you see, Phantom of the Opera, we all know Fanny Robert, we know Lon Chaney, we know all the different permutations. But who would have thought the chandelier is falling from the ceiling and they're going through, you think they're on a boat on the water. And it's those were brilliant stage techniques and, and things that were done that made that show a visual feast. It wasn't just that it was Phantom of the Opera. Then there's the score, which is gorgeous, you know, and then, then there's the costumes, which are amazing. And then, you know, on and on and on. Masquerade to me is still one of the best things ever staged. It's just glorious to see. You know, and it's not choreography. I call it handiography, you know, but the, just the simple thing of taking two, three steps down, three steps. Da, da, bum, ba, da, ba, da, da, ba, da. It was just tremendous, Jillian Lynn. So that's what I think really contributes to all of those blockbuster mega money makers is that the creativity behind it was tremendous, tremendous. I saw Beetlejuice recently. And there's this big dance number where somebody comes out in one of those costumes where it's like you're one person, but you have two puppets on either side of you. Right, right. And I noticed it in the back and I was like, oh, if you're not paying attention, you now think there's 20 people on stage when in reality there's 10, but da, da, da. Right. And I thought of Masquerade exactly. Yes, because they had mannequins. Yeah. Yeah, that very clever staging. Absolutely. And when you first see all of those people on the staircase, you don't realize that some of them are not real. You just see this mass of people and you really don't notice it even when the number is progressing. You just think those are the people that are standing still. Yeah, because you have a moment where you're like, oh, wow, that's amazing, clever, very clever. But then you're back to the story and it yes. just enhances it without distracting. Exactly, exactly. Taking a break from the interview to mention our Patreon page. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You'll get the outtakes from today's interview where Ken talks about his recent trip from Italy and I talk a little bit about Muni experiences. 
You'll also have access to the archive of all outtakes and bonus content. Thanks in advance for your support. Sign up at patreon.com slash artistic finance. And now back to the show. Okay, so so Cats was run, running West End. I assume everybody knew it was going to be really successful on Broadway. No. Oh, no, because, I mean, you know, we know many things that are hits in the West End don't necessarily sell on Broadway, especially Cats, because it was the first out of the gate. We're not ta- we're giving that Evita had already happened and things like that. But Evita had another kind of thing. I mean, it was about Ava Perone and it was this and that and it had been, you know, Harold Prince and so forth. Uh, Cats was conceptual. Evita was narrative, story, brilliantly staged by Harold Prince conceptually, but it had a solid underpinning of a story and so forth. Cats was purely conceptual. I mean, other than the fact that there were the poems, there was nothing else. So it was really conceptual. The show didn't get rave reviews, really. I mean, there were many favorable reviews, but there were people who went, meh, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of hubris. It's a lot of this. It's a lot of this. It's a lot. And it was like, yeah, I remember Trevor telling us when we were, because we were getting the scuttle already that people were going, this is just going to be awful. And what a desecration of Broadway to bring something this trivial to the Broadway stage. That's what was really happening. And Trevor came to us near first preview, you mentioned, and he says, we have an advance, $8 million. He says, so I want us all to relax. We are going to run, (laughs) you know, and say that to a cast. I mean, that's as good as it gets. It's called, look, do our creative work. We don't have to worry whether they like it or not. People want to see it. They've already let us know because they bought all these tickets already. So no matter what the critics say, it's not going to make people go to the box. I want my money back. They want to see this show. The critics are a stepping stone. And, that, and, you know, and of course, that doesn't make critics happy when they know that their opinion is not the deciding factor of the success or not of the show. There is an ego involved there. And Cats was one of those things. It was like, say what you want, but the show is a hit. It's going to be a hit because people want to see it. If you didn't like it, that's fine. And God bless you. But that's not going to stop anything. And I think that was one of the first times that happened as well. It was like the critics, you know, and there were critics. I remember Stuart Klein, who was, I think, the TV critic for uh, CBS, I forget what station, who was a friend. But he said to me, to my face, what's that Moses actor doing up there on that stage? First of all, I think the show's a pilot, but that's cat. He said, besides, he said, but aside from that, what is that Moses actor doing? What is that? And I thought to myself, well, my goodness, did I slap your grandmother or something? <laughs> what are you being so mean about? And he really didn't appreciate it. And I said, but Stuart, <laughs> I said, versatility. Can we use one word? You Last time you saw me on Broadway, I was in Ain't Misbehaving playing more or less Fats Waller. Now I am this whole, you know, patriarchal, mythical, mystical don't you think that deserves some kind of credit? I don't like you like that. I want to see, I thought, oh, well, now we get to the matter. You know, you don't like me like that. Okay. But for me, it was called, I'm 27 years old and I'm playing a, a 999 year old patriarch. Give me a break. That's amazing. Okay. So I, I actually thought it was just sort of assumed that it was going to be this mega hit. So I'm curious, what was your process for auditioning? Because I thought you were auditioning for something that was expected to be huge. Well, I think that's two different things. It was expected to be huge, but a hit, if you will. I mean, I'm dickering, you know, semantically. But I think everybody knew that it was going to be appreciated. 
we're talking finance. So I think people didn't necessarily know it was going to be a box office hit. They figured it would probably be a creative success because everybody was waiting to see it. It was already a success in London. So again, it was that thing of, we don't need you to tell us it's a success. It's already a success. We just need the room and the people and everybody else get out of the way. For me, the process of auditioning, I mean, it was interesting. The auditions had gone on for six months. I mean, they were seeing everybody, everybody. They even were, of course, contemplating bringing some of the people over from London and blah, 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 blah. But that was quickly decided, eh, eh, we're going to do Americans because this is going to be an American version of Cats. We're not doing that other London thing. You know, that, hadn't, that didn't really happen until a little bit later. Uh, you know, God bless Elaine Page. You know what I'm saying? All those roles she created, she never got to do any of them in New York. I went to see the closing performance of Amos Behaving on Broadway. I wasn't in the show at this point, but I went to the closing performance. And God rest and bless him, Gerald Schoenfeld, who was one of the partners in the Schubert organization, head of it, came up to me and he says, uh, Kenny, did you audition for Cats? I said, no, I didn't audition for Cats. I said, this is like a dance show. I mean, there's nothing. In it. He said, no, there's a role in it that I think you'd be right for. I want you to go in and I'm going to tell him that. And this is God's truth. He said, I'm going to tell Vinnie Lip, who's Ken. Now, they hadn't brought me in, understand. It wasn't a matter that I didn't want to go. They had not called me. So anyway, he had them call me in. I was going out to do the NBC television version of Ain't Misbehaving. And they gave me the music and the thing. And I rehearsed it while I was in California in Hollywood. And I always laughed because I would sing Dressing of Cats in the Shower. And Amelia McQueen, my dear departed soul sister, uh, was in the next room and she would hear me singing it in the shower and we would get ready to go to the to the to NBC to the studio and she'd go eh, a little more work page you almost got it and I said what are you talking about she goes oh I heard you in the shower I heard you singing the songs and oh god I thought I was by myself and she's in the next room going man that note's not there yet you know but I came, I got the music I came back and in the last week after the six month period in the last week I went into audition five months and three weeks after the whole thing and i came in on a monday and they had me come back on a friday i came in and i sang blah 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 they had me sing again and do a monologue which was like a monologue it's just that following monday they chose the cast and announced it by tuesday morning it was put in the newspapers now mind you just to show you how the machine was in work soon as I was going in, somehow it made it into the press that I was being considered for cats, which was news to me. <laughs> you know, I hadn't been in yet. And then when I went in on Monday, somewhere in the middle of the week, they were saying things like rumor has it that Broadway's Ken Page, blah, blah, blah. And it named a couple of the people are in hot contention mm. for the lead roles of blah, blah, blah. It was so showbiz, you know. <laughs> I can't wait to really write about it. I'm going to really pump it up. But it, it really was real showbiz. To quote Jillian Lynn, she says, darlings, it was neck and neck, you know. It's <laughs> like, Whoa! you know. So coming in that Monday, I, got, I went out to Fire Island for the weekend. And I got back in that Monday morning and literally I walked into my apartment and maybe 15, 20 minutes after I got in, which is probably about 11 or so in the morning, the phone rang and it was Tyler Getchell from Getchell Newfeld office casting uh, general managers. And he said, uh, uh, hello, is this Ken Page? I said, yes, this is Tyler Getchell from the Getchell Newfeld office. This is our showbiz, right? I said, yes, Tyler. Good morning. Good morning, Ken. Are you well? I said, yeah, what is it? Let me have it. You know, 
He says, well, I'm calling you to say that we would love for you to play the role of old Deuteronomy in Cats. Are you interested? <laughs> Are you interested, right? And I was like, oh, my God, yes. Well, I spent the whole weekend praying, you know, because by the time, even though, and I thought about the poor people, Betty Buckley, who auditioned early and had to wait all the way to the end of six months to be cast. I thought about those people, she among many, but I only had one week to deal with and it was hellified pressure. You know, I can't even imagine for those other people. Some of them had been back and forth two and three, four times. But when they said, you know, you got the role, I would add to that. Certainly it was a personal, wonderful thing. However, the whole arena of show business had been so pumped and hyped about this show by that point and who was going to be in it. At one point they said Cher was going to play Grizabella and, you know, Liza was in contention and this one that I mean, it was huge. It was like nothing had like that had ever happened before because they were really, you know, putting it out there. And then there was that huge billboard, of course, over the Winter Garden Theater where they only had the cat's eyes and cats. That's all you said. There were no pictures. There was no advance. Uh, and again, like we said earlier, you couldn't look at the London production and say that's what's going to be because word had been leaked, of course, again, publicity, that it was going to look different than the London production. So you didn't know what it was going to be. So there was this huge amount of... Um, expectation that had been nurtured and built by the time you know and when they announced the company the cast it was in all the newspapers it was in time it was in every it was everywhere so you got this thing that we now are used to that sort of media hype or media uh sweep that didn't exist then it was a very rare thing for things to cover media the way this did at the time and it was everywhere instantly my phone was ringing off the hook now I may mean, i'd had broadway shows at that point but people were like, some people didn't even know I was up for it, other than the little blurbs had been in the newspaper and everybody wasn't reading that. And they were like, did I read in the paper? <laughs> did I read in the New York Times that you're doing cats? I said, I am. I am doing cats. Well, what happened? When did this go on? I had one actor, God bless him. He, he replaced me in the show. And he walked up to me on the street and he said, and I have to tell it because he said it. He says, so you've been, you're Deuteronomy. I said, yeah, how did that happen? I said, well, it must have been a mistake. I said, I'm sure they've made an awful, horrible, terrible mistake, and it will be rectified any day now. Stay tuned. <laughs> I mean, he was really like, how did you get that? You know, and as I had said to, to Stuart, it was a part of me that I, uh, I brought forward to audition for that, that most of the Broadway community didn't know because the things I had been doing up to them didn't have that requirement. But I was a trained singer and a theater major. So it wasn't odd for me, but nobody had seen that. I don't think anybody would have guessed that I was that was in my wheelhouse or in my treasure chest of things to do. So people were truly a little astounded that I was cast in the show. Like, how are you going to do that? You know? And I thought, well, stay tuned. Yeah, right. That's amazing. And how uh, did you go into re like rehearsals right away then? And then how long were you with the show? Uh, not right away, because, of course, you have negotiations and all those sorts of things. But what are you going to say? Oh, no, nah, I don't think I'm going to do it. You know, it's called whatever you want to give me, I'll take it. Just let me do it. Uh, so that didn't last long. That was like about a week. Uh, and I think it was probably about two, three weeks out from rehearsal starting. Because, you know, there's lots of things. You go get fittings. You do all this stuff preliminary to starting rehearsal. And I did the show for just slightly under two years. And I left, I want to say, in June of 84. 
And Betty had left like six months before and Laurie Beachman had come in. So I did the show with her for six months and then I left. And then after that, there was sort of a tumble, you know, people started coming up. But we'd already done it for almost two years by that point. So uh, naturally, people were starting to move on. And the dancer people more were in, broken into pieces. So they, some of them had to go home and lay down. You know? <laughs> and, and I'm curious, because you had Broadway shows before that, but then this mega musical happened and you were there for two years. Did that impact your career moving forward? Well, I think everything impacts your career to some degree. Being in a mega hit musical doesn't hurt. But at the same time, because it was the kind of show that it was, you were costumed and made up and so forth. So it wasn't like you were out front and center, like Patti Lapone and Evita. Patti Lapone and Evita, right? We were sort of behind our characters. But I this was my third Broadway, third, fourth Broadway show. So I knew to combat that with a certain amount of extracurricular activity. So I did a show at the bottom line, one of the best clubs ever that used to be in New York. And I called it out Catton, you know, it was pop rock and all that sort of stuff. And I did it. I took a couple of nights off cats, I think that I could take. And I did this show, but I had done that subsequently with the Wiz and Ain't Misbehaving and Guys and Dogs. So I knew when you're in a show playing a character, so I'm a character actor, to keep the public aware of what you do as yourself, the entertainer, you have to put it out there. And Cats more than anything, maybe than the Wiz, than I had that I had done because you were covered. They did not see you. They saw the character. You know, I had a producer that I had worked with previous to that point come backstage. The people went on stage seats and he was not pleasant. But anyway, he says to me, you know, nobody knows it's you. <laughs> well, my answer was, but you do. <laughs> I like to tell that because it was it was choice. You know, I could see his face fall. It was very funny. But he went out of his way to sort of let me know that even though you're in this hit musical, nobody knows it's you. And I thought, well, you you know, and that's probably all that matters right now. Isn't it? <laughs> but that's why I really did make a point of doing extra things so that it didn't, you know, and it worked. It worked because it became an issue of, well, 10 pages and cats, not cats with some people for me personally. And it was important because I had had shows before then. I wasn't being introduced to Broadway through cats. So I had to keep a maintaining hand over my career as opposed to the opportunity of cats. But it was pretty amazing. I mean, you know, you don't get that kind of guarantee. Had I wanted, I could have stayed in the show for years to the question of how long I did it. I could have stayed forever. I remember Gerald Schoenfeld came up to me again from the shoe. He says, Kenny, I hear you're leaving the show. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to, I'm going to Hollywood. He says, are you sure about this? And, you know, for that second, you know, when the Schubert head of Schubert says, are you sure? You go, maybe I'm not sure. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> maybe I am making a mistake. And I said, no, Gerald, I, you know, this is my fourth Broadway show. And I think I should probably branch out some. There were other Broadway offers. They were doing Three Musketeers and they offered me that. They were doing the first, the music about Jackie Robinson. But I was in the best, you know, that was an e-ticket. Cats was as good as it could get. And I wasn't going to leave Cats to go and, maybe be in a show that may or may not run. I remember one of our ladies in the show, Marlena Danielle, who had stepped into a role that was done by Wendy Edmead, who had stepped out. And she she went from swing to doing one role to finally doing, in the end, she did Bombalarina for years, but she went in as Demita, blah, blah. She was offered to stand by for Cheetah in Kiss of the Spider Woman. And she said, why would I leave Cats to stand by for Cheetah Rivera, who is never out, <laughs> who does not miss shows 
why would I leave here to go do that? And uh, she didn't. And, you know, of course, she bought a huge mansion in New Jersey and put her son through college. I mean, she did well by staying in the show. But those were the kind of things that were going on. But I think a lot of people understood that from a financial business point of view, that when you get a show like that, you try to make it work for you in every way it can. Because I, I call those government shows. They don't come along often where you can look down the road and know it's going to be there. As long as you're able to sustain yourself and do it and can mentally and physically, you got a pretty good jo- government job. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're working for the Pentagon. You know, If there's things you want to do, that's the time to do it. I looked at apartments to buy. I was in a great apartment in Central Park, but it was a rental. And I thought, well, maybe it's time to buy an apartment. Maybe I looked at all these big, beautiful lofts and things. And it was very interesting because they would say, well, uh, you know, we have a a one bedroom on the basement floor or something. I was like, that is not what I'm looking for. Well, what do you do? I said, well, I'm in cats. Cats, let me show you the penthouse apartment, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So it worked for me in that way, you know. People were very, well, because they too, financially, they knew this is a bank. This is not a maybe. This is a bank. But I chose to go to California. But two years was long enough in a run creatively for me. Yeah, know? yeah, that's plenty of time. It's plenty of time. And you remember you're putting on makeup every night and all the things that go into it. And that's actually interesting. I didn't really think about it that you're a cat. And so when people come see the show, they are seeing a cat, not Ken Page. They're not thinking, oh, there's Ken Page. Unless you pre, you know, make sure they know it's you in it as they, you know. Because I was thinking, oh, everybody in Cats then their career, you could draw on cats for the rest of your life. You say, oh, I'm in cats, but you were a cat. While we were still on Broadway, in that two years, the national company went out. So all of a sudden, there's a duplicate company doing the same things that you're doing on Broadway. There's somebody else doing Deuteronomy on the road. And there's another Grizabella and another da 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 And as you know, the history went on from there. So quickly, while we were that amazingly fortunate, selected special group of people who originated the show on Broadway, within a year, we were already being duplicated. And they came back to the show, a little footnote, financially again, they came back to the show, Equity. And while we were all on white contracts, I remained on a white contract with characters, but they went through the show because they were taking out the national and decided they needed to have a few more pink contracts, which was chorus, basically. So they went back to the show and delineated who could then be put on chorus contracts rather than principal contracts. So that was the first, I call it deconstruction of the Broadway company because people who had been hired as principals, we were all principals. And then all of a sudden midway come uh, negotiation time for the new contracts, they were being sorry to anybody in ensemble, but they were being demoted to chorus where they had been principals. So that made a lot of unhappy people because they were now all of a sudden a chorus member in Cats, where six months before they had been a principal on Broadway. And that got icky sticky. And people were like, well, you know what? It's time to go. I don't want to be a chorus. I wasn't in the chorus of dancing, for instance, like a couple of the people. Why would I want to be in the chorus of Cats? I came in as a principal. I should leave as a principal, you know? So that started the deconstruction. And then they started to hire a lot of very, very talented people, but a lot of ensemble people rather than principals who could play in an ensemble. So the show took a different turn as far as how the people were cast. A lot of ex-chorus line people were brought into the show subsequently. And some of them were amazing. And some of them were, you know, they were not as strong as the original people had been. Well, okay, this is just a petty little thing. Did you see the 2019 film? I did. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, I applaud everyone's efforts. Nobody does anything for it to not be good. So you can't say, oh, boy, whoop, shoo. 
Uh, so they went into it. I think the first mistake they made was not using any of the people that created the project because it was a conceptual project. And I understand the difference between film and stage and so on and so forth. They didn't use Trevor. They didn't use Jillian. They didn't use none of John Napier's brilliant ideas and so forth. So they had a different product from Jump Street. And then you add a storyline, which el- eliminated T.S. Eliot's poetry, which is the whole point of the show to begin with. It just deconstructed what Cats was overall in the first place. So it was really like a show called Cats that really wasn't Cats, a movie, you know. So it had that working against it from the very beginning. And some of the choices that they made were worrisome, to be honest. And that's not a criticism. They were just like, why would you have Cats saying to Victoria, what's the matter? Cat got your tongue? That doesn't make sense. You know, and they talked about how the scale changed. Sometimes they were cat scaled and they were human scale. And I think there was an oversight in general of not trusting the material to begin with. And when you look at the filmed stage version, which was done very well by Jillian and David Mallet, who did the film directing and Jillian did really all of it, but he he, he told you where to put the camera, right? Uh, It's a better version if you want to know what Cats was ever about. That's the version you want to look at. Because the film is not representative of the show at all. It's just some other idea of it, you know. And it's too bad. They spent a lot of money, and there were a lot of very talented people involved. But, you know, it was scary. Some of it was Jennifer Hudson, who is glorious. She was literally sort of frightening in the film. It wasn't that they didn't make... And Grizabella was a glamour cat. Did you ever hear the poem? She didn't have any faded, you know what I mean? Things like that, that just didn't seem like somebody knew what they were really doing when they started the project. So for me, like I said, I went alone because I didn't want anybody going, what do you think? I went by myself. The one thing I always say is a joke, and I really do mean this is a joke. Whose coat was Judy Dench wearing? That was my, (laughs) well, she had this gorgeous fur coat. And I thought, is that her fur? Is that somebody else's fur? Is it a coat? Is it a, is it supposed to be her? It was very, those kind of choices. Like, that's not a costume, that's a coat. So if she's a cat, why is she wearing a coat? You know, it was very strange. Uh, and someone asked me about Judy Dench. I said, well, look, if somebody's going to do your role in a film, <laughs> you know, Judy Dench, you know, come on. you know. And I understood it because, you know, with gender switch and all that, Deuteronomy could have been female, why not? And who could be more that thing that Deuteronomy is supposed to be than Judy Dench? But then they didn't give her the role to play. They gave her an interpretation of the role. And she was probably came through it better than most because Deuteronomy had to be Deuteronomy. But the idea of why she's there in the piece was muddied. So you still weren't sure what was happening. Judy, I can always say Judy Dench did a, created a role in film that I did. <laughs> That's our connection. That's our six degrees of separation. Have you have you met Judy Dench? I have not, and I adore her. She's just glorious. Her truth is but unbelievable on film and stage. You absolutely, when you meet her, you absolutely have to say, oh, so you're the one that, that took my role to that film. Well, you know what? I would imagine from everything I've ever seen of her, it would be a wonderful moment. You go, darling, you know, because we do not many people can share that, you know, not to not say Brian Blessed, who originated the role of Deuteronomy. I mean, I'm sure they know each other, uh, a British, uh, but I would love to meet her just if for nothing else. And there's a gazillion other reasons just to say you are the person who took Deuteronomy to the screen. I'm sure she played, oh, darling, let's not bring that up. <laughs> you know? Looking it up, 
the numbers are different. So, you know, some places say it lost 20 million, 40 million. 50. My only opinion of the film is it probably wouldn't have lost all that money if Ken Page was old dude Ron. Uh, That's my kind. only opinion. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, but hey, they had Judy Dench. So it ain't Deuteronomy's fault. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. All right, Ken, is there anything more about cats that we should touch on or mention before we close out? Because it was such a huge, it is such a huge success, the creative thing that was done there is underestimated now. When you go back to 1982, the things we did in that theater and the things that were done technically and so forth were groundbreaking. They weren't, oh, another one of, it was all groundbreaking. It's the first time that Andrew filtered the instrumentation of the show through a sound system so that the instruments were all over the house. They were actually programmed to come from different places. You heard downstage left and you're at the back of the house. That was the first time that had been really done. So that was groundbreaking. The idea, like I said, the creativity of the, the costuming and the visuals, it was all really, really, really groundbreaking. And now it's, you know, it's how many years old and everybody's seen you know, their, their kindergarten classes done cats now, you know, <laughs> but in the, at the time it was all really, really very groundbreaking and innovative. And that's the one thing I always say to people now, and I've been in a few productions of it uh, subsequently. And I always try to remind them that while it's cats, the entity now, it was cats, the innovation in the beginning. Yeah. Uh, Star Wars is known for being like what brought George Lucas a bunch of money because he kept the toy rights. Cats was like the first musical that the merchandise was sold everywhere. Absolutely. All right, Ken, this is a trick question, but do you know what the number one selling T-shirt was in the 1980s? Well, Cats. Ah, and there's where you're wrong. There's where you're wrong. (laughs) Star Wars. It was the Hard Rock Cafe T-shirt. Oh, well, that makes sense. But number two was Cats. Well, you know, Hard Rock (laughs) was such a, uh, what do we call it now, a brand. Cats came up about because of the creative outflow of the project hard rock was called hard rock they put it on everything except your forehead at the time but the thing i thought was great about the cats t-shirt and still is my nephew just found one in resale somewhere is it really was it was sort of like chorus line in its branding it was really very chic you know i saw people dressed up at clubs i mean in dressed up leather blah 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 with a cats t-shirt because of the black and the eyes it was really a very very fashion forward statement at the time the t-shirt Smart. I think it's Denwitters of London did the, the marketing thing of it. They also did the Les Mis logo. It was very, very smart. Even now, I mean, people might sneer a little because it's cats, but that T-shirt is pretty fashion forward simply because it's it's just simply the black in the eyes. It's no, you know. Ken, I cannot thank you enough for talking through all this with me. Thank oh, you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and we did talk by that. So that's good. All right, Ken, last question that you don't have to answer, but I ask everybody, which is where can people connect with you if you want them to? And who do you want connecting with you? They can connect with me in prayer. No, <laughs> no I don't do the whole my, 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 you know, thing is dash cut dot com. I don't do all that because I'm not savvy with all that. I just say, look, I'm on Facebook. Find me if you want to. If you don't want to just say hi in your mind and I'll hear you or whatever. What do I have coming up? I'm directing Amos Behaven at Escondido. California Performing Arts Center in in September, and I'm doing the O'Neill Festival Cabaret Convention in uh, 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 another two weeks. And I will be back at 54 Below, where I did this past May, to my, 
I have to knock wood and say it was very successful one night. And I'm doing another one night a year later, same day. So May 4th, 2023, I will be at 54 Below again. And my show was called So Much to Talk About and Sing About Too. This show will be still so much to talk about and sing about too. So I will be back. Look for me there. That's where you can find me, any of those places. All right. My, my birthday is May 5th. So May oh, it 4th, is. Oh, 2023. We got to see if the you're there page. on May 4th, I will wish you happy birthday from the <laughs> stage. Absolutely. <laughs> that is amazing. All right, Ken, thank you so much for making the time for this. I, I really appreciate it. I'm so happy I got to talk with you. Oh, I'm glad we got to do it. I'm glad we made it work. That's it for this week's interview with Ken Page. A little bit more about Cats the Musical. Now, in the New York Times review of Cats, Frank Rich wrote that despite its flaws, the reason people will hunger to see Cats is that it's a musical that transports the audience into a complete fantasy world that could only exist in the theater. On the business side, everything that was wrong with Cats became right. No stars? No problem, because cast changes aren't really a problem. Thin storyline? Well, foreign tourists aren't going to get lost in all of that. No big money quote from the New York Times? That's okay too because the poster was just yellow cat eyes with a little tagline that said, now and forever. The show created a model for the Cameron Mackintosh produced mega musicals, Les Mis, The Phantom of the Opera, and Miss Saigon, all with spectacle set pieces like tires, barricades, chandeliers, helicopters, and iconic logos. So just like the cat eyes, a girl, mask, sun. And these all came out just a few years after Steven Spielberg's Jaws and George Lucas's Star Wars brought sort of the same thing to movies, this mega selling movie. Now Cats changed Broadway because it had a global presence. So Andrew Lloyd Webber, who was the producer and also the producers made a priority to replicate the staging as soon as possible to get it around the world before others could copy it. This, simultaneous with Broadway's success, created a huge international profile. Now, Cats had no language barrier, so you don't have to be fluent in English to understand the story. It created family appeal. So Broadway was historically not aimed at families, but that became the main audience for Cats, which meant money. Again, with the marketing, it's just the iconic eyes. The simplicity of the logo made it cost-effective to run ads on TV. And producers took control of the show. So that started a trend where nowadays producers pretty much control a show. Yes, the artistic team provides a lot and often is buddy-buddy with the producers, but the producers get the final say. The 2019 version of Cats was a disaster. The movie made $60 million worldwide but cost $100 million to produce and at least lost $70 million for Universal. Do you have anything to add to the conversation or a follow-up question? Please email me directly at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com or message me on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying the show, please consider becoming a patron. You'll get access to our bonus content, including today's outtakes about Ken's trip to Italy and the Muni productions in which Ken and I overlapped. Now, those outtakes are available to patrons, and you can sign up for as little as $3 a month, or you can subscribe annually, and you can cancel anytime. Thank you for your support, and you can sign up at patreon.com slash artisticfinance. And let me leave you with one action item today, and that is to give the 2019 movie version of Cats a pity stream. Just put it on in the background so that everybody involved can feel a little bit better about themselves seeing that somebody's watching.
<laughs> That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.